we use that to, over time, build into this sort of organic growth engine. So every afternoon, 3 p.m., we'd all sit down and we'd fold cards, put cards into a piece of paper, fold it up, put it in an envelope, stick a label on it. We couldn't send out cards fast enough. So we started a waiting list and up until sort of end of the year before last was driving 100, 150,000 people every month. Hello and welcome to the FinTech Marketing Podcast, bringing you insights and ideas from the world's leading financial service marketers. I'm your host, Eric Fulweiler, CMO of 11FS. I'm on a mission to learn how the world's hottest FinTech startups and most innovative financial service brands drive growth through modern day marketing. Today's guest is Tristan Thomas, VP of Marketing at Monzo Bank, who was on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2019 and Campaign's Power 100 list. Thanks for coming on, Tristan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, so let's kick things off. What is your favorite brand in FS, outside of Monzo, of course, and why? Uh, I was thinking about this question. I think it's probably TransferWise. Um, when we started out, TransferWise were the preeminent FS brand, and they had this advertising. I'm, the, the one I remember most is running through the streets of London naked. And it was such a great way to stand out from the crowd of remittance. There are a bunch of remittance companies, right? And you only ever think about TransferWise. And then the most interesting thing has been their their transition from this brand that runs through the streets of London naked into a brand that is sort of much more mainstream now, but also still very focused on transparency, fairness, teaching customers about fees and um, being really, really open about how much they charge. And so for us at Monzo and for me personally, that vibes really, really well with how we approach marketing uh, and seems to resonate really well with customers. That's cool. I don't think I've seen that ad, but I'll have to check it out. And then I think we're we're talking about getting somebody from TransferWise on the show, right? Yeah, so hopefully we'll be able to hear their perspective as well. But I think that's interesting because I think a lot of a lot of startups in general, but definitely in fintech, you kind of see this evolution in their marketing and in their brand yeah. from being kind of like the outsider challenger where maybe you can be, maybe need to be a little bit more kind of risky and aggressive with what you're putting out there to trying to uh, get to that scale and that maturity of a brand where maybe you need to be a little bit more, um, I guess, balanced in your approach and what you say. Yeah, and I think you see that across all marketing, really, outside of financial services as well. I mean, I think one of the best marketing moves to make as a new startup is to get your ad banned by TFL. And, you know, you sort of, uh, who did it recently? Farm Drop did it where they included butter in their ad and that goes against the uh, TFL regulations um, to higher fat content, I think. And and the amount of press you get from that is incredible. Whereas if you're an established brand and and your ad gets banned by TFL, I'm not sure it goes down so well. Yeah, you've got kind of less to risk. And so the whole no press is is bad press works in transport for London specifically. Cool. So um, tell us about yourself a little bit. So what's your background? How'd you end up uh, at Monzo being the VP of marketing there? Um, And how are things going now? Yeah, so I joined Monzo in September 2015. We were a company of a about 10 to 15 people in a, in a very small, not very nice office just up the road from here. Uh, and I joined as a community manager originally. So before that, I was living and working in Egypt, working for a refugee charity and moved back to London and, and thought I wanted to try out a startup uh, and applied for a few. And Monzo 
happened to interview me first and offer me a job, so, uh, so I accepted. I thought at the time, um, it was my first job in London, and I thought at the time that if you didn't accept a job immediately, they would take away the offer. So I, um, I said yes on the phone when they offered it to me. Uh, and the lady who offered it said, are you sure you don't want to think about it? Uh, so <clears throat> I said, okay, I guess I should stop and think about this and waited for two hours and then said yes. Um, so the brief there was to build out the beginnings of our focus on community. How do we engage? We didn't have any customers at the time, but as we started to give out these prepaid debit cards, how do we get customers involved in that and how do we get their feedback and, and bring them on the journey? So I started our community forum, started running our events. We started with hackathons and then grew from there. And that sort of over time morphed into a more generalized marketing role. Um, did that for six or eight months and then moved into our product team, was our product manager for our first Android app, um, which we built a year or two after the iOS app uh, to the consternation of all the Android fans. And then in early 2017, took over running the marketing team. Um, at the time, that was two or three people, and we were mainly focused on still some of the same community activities. How do we get customers involved in what we do? How do we communicate with them in a transparent and sort of open way? And then since then, that's grown. We now have a team of 20 to 25 people sitting across marketing and comms and PR uh, still community, obviously, and then a wider remit into financial inclusion and public policy. How much of an advantage do you think having that experience as a product manager gives you now in your marketing role? Just because I think so many yeah. people in marketing don't usually come from engineering or tech or maybe don't have that hands-on experience and understanding of how the product actually works and is built. I think it's invaluable, honestly. We see, I talk to so many CMOs who... Um, the marketing and product teams are just sort of two totally separate silos who hate each other and refuse to talk to each other. And the product teams will build something, throw it over the fence to the marketing teams who will market it. And then when it fails, they'll both blame each other. You know, it wasn't built properly. Oh, it wasn't marketed well. Um, and so I think getting, and we try and do this for ac across the whole Monzo marketing, getting people really understanding what the product development process is, building those in together so that, you know, they shouldn't be separate sequential items in a list of um, priorities. We should be thinking about what do customers want, how are we going to communicate this with them before we even start building a feature, and then taking a feature all the way through and, and launching it needs to be a combination as well. Um, and then you can use product to do marketing and tell customers about the new feature and, and vice versa as well. So I think it's crucial and... Um, we try and do that as much as possible. Yeah, because I guess at the end of the day, the best marketing is is a strong product, right? Totally. So there should be that connection of what is it that people are actually finding valuable within what you're offering and telling that story in a way and in places that they're actually going to care about and see. Yeah, totally. I see so many startups who go all in on marketing before they've even got any sort of product market fit, before they have something that customers even want. They're buying tube ads, they're doing huge campaigns, they're, you know, trying to get people to refer their friends and then they're surprised when um, they're spending all of this money and none of those customers are sticking around. Yeah, and you at Monzo, you all were kind of very early on, which I think kind of became a trend in the fintech space of saying that you didn't really do marketing. And I know that in 2018, 
uh, you said that 80% of Monzo signups were actually from word of mouth. So you did have that kind of the best marketing is just a good product. There was clearly that product market fit. People cared yep. about and wanted what you were offering. But now, of course, that's evolved. But how do you think about that evolution, I guess, when it fits into your philosophy about marketing? Because now you need not just the fit mm-hmm. and that kind of um, – quality of word-of-mouth referrals, but you also need the scale yep. that doing kind of proper, at least paid marketing can bring you. Yeah, totally. So our first three years were basically all of marketing was just focused on how do we take this product that we think works quite well and that we think has product market fit, how do we communicate that to customers in an open way? And how do we involve customers as part of that journey and get their feedback? And we use that to, over time, build into this sort of organic growth engine. So built out golden tickets. Well, first of all, we built out a waiting list. Um, at the time, we couldn't send out. We were literally sending out cards from that office um, by hand. Every afternoon, 3 p.m., we'd all sit down and we'd fold cards, put cards into a piece of paper, fold it up, put it in an envelope, stip- stick a label on it. Uh, the whole company would have to stop every afternoon to do that. And so we couldn't send out cards fast enough. So we started a waiting list. And over time, that waiting list grew and we built in these referral mechanics to say, look, if you're on the waiting list and you want to invite a friend, you can skip the queue. And that, yeah, as you said, up until sort of end of the year before last was driving 100, 150,000 people every month. So the waiting list was not a marketing strategy. It was just a limitation of how many cards you could Initially, physically send sure. out. So um, over time, we, we added on some of the marketing elements. But even right up until the end, it was so useful because it meant that you could control for spikes. So even when we weren't sending out cards by hand in our office, we still had fulfillment partners who could only send out five or 10,000 cards a day. So if you have a big day of signups, you just literally, you can't, you literally can't send out enough cards. Um, so it was a u- sort of useful tool for us operationally, but then as we added on things like golden tickets and bumping yourself up the waiting list, it became hugely powerful for marketing yeah. too. Yeah, and a lot of, and a lot of, um, a lot of fintechs, a lot of startups, a lot of brands will employ that as kind of a proactive strategy, even if they're not limited with how quickly <laughs> yeah. they can send things out. I know for me, anecdotally, um, you know, being in London, I had kind of a traditional banking account, but then starting to hear about Monzo a few years ago, whenever it was, there certainly was that kind of like excitement about the waiting list and who's going to give me the golden ticket and all that. Yeah, there was this really interesting sort of emotional play where it made it feel scarce made it feel like something special. And so that's both when you get it, you feel like you're getting something unique that others don't have. But it also means that when you give a golden ticket to a friend, it's, it's almost a currency of types. And you're, you're giving them something that gives them some sort of social or um, something like that status. Uh, and that's hugely, hugely powerful. Impossible to sort of predict. Yeah, really and in a way, because a lot of people will incentivize that, right? Outside of fintech, you think of Uber and kind of the referral <clears throat> yep. codes and all that. You make this money, and your friend makes that money off of their first ride, whatever. And a lot of a lot of people do that, but in a way, psychologically, it's almost more powerful if it is kind of that exclusivity totally. that you're giving people access to. And if if you know your friend's not getting paid, then there's no they're not doing it for, from a self interested perspective. Mm, yeah. So it's, it's literally a genuine referral. Although some people did um, sell their golden tickets on eBay, they were going for, <laughs> for a fiver a time for a while. <laughs> and you're um, so switching gears a little bit. So obviously you've uh, launched or are launching in the in the US, mm-hmm. and are you deploying the same kind of strategy over there? Yeah, so it's in a very similar way, where 
we're very early on in the US and what we're doing is spending the time on the product. How do we get to product market fit in the US? So many companies, I think, launch in another country and think the market is going to be exactly the same. And especially in financial services, country-specific marketing and product is so, so different country to country because the culture is different. The way people interact with money is different. It's such a personal part of your life. And so we have a very small team based out on the on the West Coast who are focused on exactly that. How do we build a product with features that people actually want, not just necessarily copying the Monzo UK features, but build something for, for the US market? And then at that point, we'll build on top some of that organic referral, some of that sort of scarcity and then probably hopefully in the future as we as we grow we'll then look to scale as we've done in the UK. So the marketing efforts right now are really just focused on getting the product right. Yeah, in the and US. building community again. How yeah. do we work out how we communicate what we have today for customers and then how do we get customers input into that? Because you then build this amazing cycle. Early on in in Monzo UK, we the first few cards we gave out to people really didn't work. You could go and you could it was a contactless prepaid card, and you could spend unlimited amounts of money on a contactless card, uh, even if you had zero pounds in your account. And for the first week, that was just sort of the default. Uh, push notifications didn't work. A bunch of stuff didn't work. But we then asked the 100 or 200 people who were using it to, to tell us about all of the problems and the bugs they found, and then we fixed them, and they would get an update a week later, and we'd fixed all of those problems. And you do that over a month or two, and the engagement you get from customers where they're seeing their real-time feedback being implemented in the product they're using and it getting better and better and better is magical. And so trying to focus on that in the U.S. for now. Yeah, and that's something that as an outsider seems to be kind of one of the things I'm picking up on in this conversation I think is really interesting is that you know, there there doesn't seem to be that disconnect or that separation between what's happening in marketing and what's actually happening in product and how you're building the business and building what you're off- offering to consumers. And another red thread within that is that aspect of community. So when it comes to marketing, that plays out maybe in the events that you have done over here and maybe you're planning to do those in the U.S. as well. And then on the product side, that feeds into what you were just saying about how people feel like they can actually have an impact on the evolution of the company. So there's that consistency of, you know, you guys are always um, talked about as having community and transparency at the center of what you do, but it's not just at the center of marketing or product, it's actually both. Right, like in an ideal world, it's incredibly valuable to us as a company because you get real-time feedback from customers about everything about your product, about how it works for them, about your marketing and how you're communicating it. And we get lots of benefit from those people being really engaged and telling their friends. And as a customer, you get huge benefits of influencing the product that you're using, being part of its development, and um, hopefully being able to sort of shape its future over the over the next few years. Yeah, I think that's um, that's such a fundamental uh, difference in more what I would call modern day marketers and marketing organizations versus more traditional, simply because in today's technology landscape, you are actually able to see the data of how right. your marketing campaign is performing and have people feedback to you. And historically, you weren't able to do that. <laughs> You'd have to push out a campaign and maybe hope that sale. it was more correlation yep. than causation. And so now you need to work in that more the data side of it and not just from a bottom line perspective of how it's impacting your business, but also more from a qualitative, like what are the insights that you can gain to help inform what you should be putting out for product or for marketing going forward. Yeah, exactly. And then you get into the sort of nirvana where you're building products, from uh, nirvana for a marketer anyway, where you're building products that people love 
And um, then all you have to do is tell people about it. Yep. And for telling people about it, so you know, you're now at this stage where you've kind of gone uh, from more of the bottom up, call it grassroots type of marketing approach, to now being on the tube, being mm-hmm. on TV. You ran your first TV campaign in July. Sounds like that did well. So how have you how how are you thinking about that shift to now going to scale and going above the line with your marketing? The way I see it is, it's less of a shift and more of a an addition on top of what we already have. So. We started this uh, early, beginning of last year, and at the time we were sending out 100, 150,000 customers organically, and we wanted to explore how do we how do we supercharge that. So I never want us to get into a position where the var- 80% of our customers are coming through advertising, for example, because you just get, you get addicted to paid advertising. Uh, you're spending more and more money, prices go up over time, and uh, it becomes very difficult to get out of that. And so instead we see things like TV as a way to take it to the next level much, much quicker. The sort of downside of organic marketing is that by definition you can only expand as fast as people tell their friends. And so for us paid is a way to both make that happen faster and to reach new groups of people that it would take longer for us to reach. So we started off by starting to invest in performance marketing on Facebook and Google and then expanded into tube and TV advertising. Um, and, wow, people really watch TV. It was ridiculous. Yeah. It's one of those things that when we decided to do it internally, you, we talk to our employees and you know, 80% of people say, well, I don't, I don't watch TV anymore. And... Uh, Turns out people still watch TV, and people within our demographic still watch TV. It was it was huge. Yeah, there's always that uh, that uh, liability of you know thinking that the rest of the world is exactly <laughs> like you to, yep. to to oversimplify it. But you know, it all comes down to for me. I think any good marketing really understands and empathizes with the world of their consumer and their target audience. Yep. And so there is that balance of you as the leader of the Monzo brand. You need to think about how you want to push things forward and lead in that sense, but you also need to reverse engineer from not just what is going to resonate with the people that you want to sign up and use your product, but also where they are. And like, and yeah, for the, you know, sitting in East London with, you know, probably not having cable at home or whatever it is for the likes of you and me, that is not the reality for a vast majority of the UK and the US. Yeah. And that, and that's, is so interesting that, as you say, that um, propensity to just project your life onto the lives of every other single person in the UK, um, even within your age group or within your demographics, um, there is a, a huge number of people still watching TV or using Facebook or whatever it is. And so what about the creative process for the TV campaign? Are you working with an external agency? How did you land on the story that you wanted to tell? And did you think differently about how the Monzo brand should come across in that type of channel? Yeah, it was really interesting because it was our first time working with an agency. And um, I mean, also our first time doing any sort of advertising, really. So we were both figuring it out as we went along and doing it in a very compressed timescale. So we kicked off um, the campaign last year in mid-January and went live in May or something, which feels like a long time for someone who who sort of grew up in a digital business, but apparently it's very quick for TV. Um and so to do that, we had to find an agency that we could work with in a way that works for us. And the usual way for creative agencies is they'll go away, they'll sort of find five or ten ideas and then bring you one or two that are the perfect genius ideas and it just doesn't work for us. And so we, we worked with them to, 
sort of flip that around and so get them into our office, spend loads and loads of time with them, work through those 10 ideas together, tweak them, merge them together and, and make it really, really collaborative. Uh, and so we got in the end to something that I really, really like that's still focused on our customers. That's again, another danger is you go too brandy and, um, it's a beautiful ad and it might win awards, but it doesn't get any customers. And so for us, the aim is how do we get out there with something that resonates with customers, but also gets them to sign up. And so focusing on products and features that work for customers, explaining how those are useful for them um, seems to resonate and, and was great. Yeah, I think it is. it was interesting for me because clearly if you think of Starling, for example, right, and, and we're having their chief growth officer on the show as well. They seem to kind of go down more the brand right. route, right? Telling this very high-level story about the brand, what it stands for, and that more emotional connection. And for you, it definitely got more of that, like, we need to make sure people know what it is about our product that's different and what why they should use it. Yeah, and then get them to download it. Yeah. Because um, that was the other interesting thing for TV was that unlike performance marketing, we couldn't track it directly. And so we needed to know that what we were doing was worth it. Uh, it's a scary amount of money and a scary amount of time that you invest into it. And so actually seeing those downloads come in, I mean, literally from the minute the ad started airing, um, signups jumped 40%. And so that was very clear to yeah, us. Yeah, and clearly it worked. It was it worked beyond our wildest expectations, honestly. We just saw this jump from 100, 150,000 people to 250,000 people signing up every month. A quarter of a million people. And we ran the ad for a month and, and that continued. And then... The best thing was that the six months after it, that still continued. Um, and so we're, we just you just jump up another level and, and uh, we still see that today. Yeah. But you've also got that advantage of if you get that awareness and you get that adoption in a market or an audience that you weren't in before, then you with the product that you have and kind of that engine of word-of-mouth referrals, then I can see why that would continue to spread and you'd continue to see those sign-ups even when the TV wasn't running. Right. I used to think marketers use brand awareness as a sort of... Um, Bullshit. Can I? I don't know if that's because. Yeah, of course. Anyway, bullshitty metric of um, to justify their marketing spend, and uh, now I'm all in on it. Everything's now you're one about of us. brand awareness. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, picking up on something you said, that I think is so important. You know that traditional creative process of you have a creative director and their teams, and they come up with these ideas, and then he or she, as the creative director, decides like these are the ideas we're yeah. going to present to the client, and then they, with the client picks the, like, the idea and apparently or three they sandbag ideas. them so they have one good one and then two bad ones so that you always choose the one that they want yeah and how they there's an art <laughs> to how they present it and yeah. sometimes there's like politics of like which team they, it's like there's a lot of that but again that was built for a very different time that process right when you didn't have this opportunity to produce a ton of different types of content and get almost real time feedback on what's working and what's not um, so I think more and more um, you're going to see brands and agencies that are using more of that type of approach that's very data-driven creativity, if you will. It's more like trying to build a laboratory for your creative ideas as opposed to like an art gallery approach where you're like, this is the perfect painting that we're right. going to put out there. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think we'll start to see the way agencies charge change as well so that it's they're not incentivized just to increase spend at, at sort of any cost um, and instead focus on performance much more because otherwise you get these very weirdly misaligned incentives. 
Yeah, and there's a lot of um, you know having having been in that world for a long time, there's a lot of gray, shall we call it, <laughs> on you know media metrics and that whole side of the fence. Do yeah. you so you work with a creative agency and also a, a media agency for that? Yeah, so yeah. a media agency for buying, and then we did all of the measurement in house, and that was the other interesting thing thing for me that we we went really deep on the measurement for TV and and sort of got to a point where we've got this econometric model that that tells us pretty accurately how many signups we got from TV and how we can predict that in the future. And even today that feels like it's relatively unusual in the in the media world. We would talk to media agencies who just didn't really have the numbers for the stuff they were selling, uh, which is intriguing but also quite scary. You know, it's interesting <laughs> talking to you because to use that art gallery uh, science lab metaphor I think you meet you meet a lot of marketers and you can kind of tell who's more on the creative side and maybe who's more on the data side of things. But you seem to be very balanced. Like you're talking a lot about kind of the creative and the message, but you're also talking about the data and econometric modeling and all that stuff. Is that a that's kind of a yeah. is that true and is that like a conscious effort from you to be balanced between the art and the science? Yeah, I think you can go down one or the other too hard and this is this is some of the difference we see with my product colleagues who who are so much more focused on the data side. It makes it very hard to invest in things like okay, we ran a campaign uh, for called Year in Monzo earlier this year, and it, it's a bit like the Spotify Year in Review. You get to see where you've spent and how much you've spent and what categories, and it's a it's a piece of fun um, that customers love to see and share online. And out of that, we don't, you know, you don't see a huge number of signups as a result. The ROI on it is impossible to calculate. But the thing it brings us is this really amorphous brand love from customers um, and people sharing about it and uh, brand awareness. And that's the sort of thing I think you have to be able to explore and invest in, um, sometimes without the numbers, whereas you wouldn't do that necessarily with a five million pound TV campaign. And is there a framework or set of principles that you follow to decide when you should be more kind of idea-led or data-driven or is it more like a gut instinct and feel? More the latter, honestly, um, which worries me because I think people who work on gut feel, it works really, really well until it doesn't and you can't replicate it, you can't share it and it just relies on like probably a lot of luck and so I would love to get to a point where we're much more um, focused, much more able to build out a process and a framework to make these sort of decisions and then um, that makes it much easier to build a team and, and all of that. And I would imagine as you're thinking about new markets and scale and all that stuff, you will need kind of that simplicity right. of having a framework so that when it's not just you and a small team here in London but you have teams operating in different markets and different leaders in, in marketing you want them to kind of have a, a consistent way that they go about building the brand wherever they are. Totally. And if you're working on on the sort of feeling side of things, you can't... I couldn't go and launch Monzo in the US from London because you just you don't have that feeling and understanding of what consumers want. And so I think to part of the framework is actually building that out. You need to go and talk to hundreds of customers for hours on end to really understand how they think and what their problems are and how they communicate those problems with money. Um, and so I think there is some framework behind it, but it's we need to find that that combination. So year in Monzo specifically, mm. 
How did that happen? Did somebody just bring you an idea? Did you brief an agency to do a year-end campaign? What was the genesis of that campaign? So we did it for the first time in, not this year, last year, sort of uh, the crossover between 2018 and 19. Um, Mainly because it seemed like fun. Uh, And... You know, inspired by by Spotify for sure. Uh, I think the way they do that is amazing. And so the first time we did it really, really lightweight. We did it with a few people in house, sort of cobbled some stuff together and, and sent it out to customers. And the the reaction was ridiculous. It trended on Twitter, and and people were loving it um, or hating it sometimes because of what it showed them about their spending. And so we we wanted to replicate that this year and think about how do we how do we get it to a higher quality and how do we um, sort of lean into those areas that people really loved around fun stats and um, sort of something that you can share without. Because the, the interesting thing is you're sharing some of your money habits, but you don't actually want to be sharing how much you're spending on rent. So we need to find things like how much have you spent on Greg's sausage rolls. Uh, so again, we did that in-house, um, which is our, our general preference uh, and built that out with a team sort of from across design, data and marketing. Cool. So we're talking a lot about um, things that have worked well, mm. things that have gone well for Monzo, but <laughs> much I'm always easier curious. It's, it's easier. It's yeah. going to be more comfortable, but I think there's so much you can learn from things that don't go as well. So what hasn't worked uh, in your kind of tenure and what have you learned from it? <laughs> so much. Every, I feel like <laughs> um, there are so many things, I mean, similar to Brand Awareness, so many things that we thought were true two years ago that just you know, everything I say today will be proven to be not true in two years' time, I'm sure. Um, so when we started off on advertising, we ran a, a tube campaign uh, for across London for two or three weeks. That did nothing. Uh, looked very nice and uh, gets cus- gets employees excited, but really didn't sign up. And investors, potentially. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, maybe we should target it more outside investors' houses and things like that to make that work. But... Um, and then I think we've got, as we grow, the struggle is working out how do you tie together a bunch of different features and, and things that are outside of the normal Monzo growth story. So for the first time, we've been exploring things like premium accounts. And for the last four years, if you've been a Monzo customer, you've been used to getting, I think, amazing features for free every single one month. And for the first time... Last year, we started to play around with how do we start charging for some features. And we got it wrong at times. Um, We both didn't build a product that worked very well, and then we didn't communicate that to customers. And we lost sight of that focus on community and customers as well. And so we didn't listen to customers enough. Uh, And so we're hopefully rectifying that, that this year. But... I think we've got a bunch of examples like that over the last few years where, you know, community, for example, is really easy to do when you have a thousand customers. Frankly, it's really easy to do when you've got a hundred thousand customers. You run one or two events a month, you get 500 to a thousand people in, those people spread, you run a forum where another 10 or 20,000 people can engage and it, it works really, really well. We started to find that that breaks when you get to a million or two million customers. And we have to find a new approach to involving our customers and still getting that feedback loop that we talked about at the beginning, but being able to do that at 10 or 100 million customers. How do you engage people at sort of global scale in a way that is still true and authentic uh, and is not something we figured out yet? So 
at times we've either lost sight of that or forgotten to engage our customers and it's um, something we grapple with every day. It's interesting because there's not just the technological limitation or um, kind of uh, part of that conversation of how do you scale what's essentially unscalable because it's it's human beings and mm. community. There's also the psychological and sociological aspect of it because I think a big thing, a big benefit that Monzo has had because you've taken this community-focused and transparent approach is you had a lot of people who felt like who really cared, you know, and felt like they were part of something, and whether it's a movement or I know, um, you know, you had people who were able to actually buy in and financially yep. be part of the success of the company, and that inherently, um, you know, it, you can't do that after a certain point because if everybody's part of something, then nobody right. really is. So there's the tech side of it of like, is it a forum? Is it an event? Or I guess I should say the functional side of it, but then there's also the emotional side. Yeah, totally. And there's um, the transparency gets more difficult the bigger you get. It's, it, I mean, it's similar to this conversation, right? Transparency is very easy when things are going well. You know, we've hit a million customers, hundreds of thousands of people are signing up. It is great. It's much, much harder when things go wrong. And it's much, much harder at scale because everything you say will appear in a Telegraph article the next day. And the challenge for us internally is... That's one of our core values, and I think one of the things that has helped us really connect with customers and been pivotal to our growth. And so we need to figure out how do we keep that going today and into the future while also not sort of letting it burn us as we go. And one of the elephants in the room with a lot of the fintech kind of conversations and landscape right now is the question of profitability because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who are investing in and building for scale and market share and at a certain point they will have to figure out how they actually operate a profitable business um, and I think that that also affects things on the marketing side and the brand side of things because if you have an opportunity to not have to worry about how you turn a profit right now you can be a lot more long term oriented which is usually more in line with what consumers want yep. and then at a certain point you got to find that balance yeah totally and I think that's most true in financial services because you're you know, you're doing something really serious. We're looking after people's money. And although people's money is protected by the government, it's still not reassuring to know that your money is with a bank that doesn't make a profit, um, especially if you're not you know, up to speed on a venture capital-funded growth model. Uh, so for an, a normal customer to know that your bank, whoever they are, isn't making a profit is an inherently quite a scary thing. And so we have to find that balance between communicating our business plan and, and where we're focused and how we get to profitability, but also um, reassuring customers and, and making sure they feel comfortable keeping their money with us. So let's talk a little bit more about the future. What is on the roadmap for you and Monzo Marketing this year? What are you most excited about that you're working on right now? What else can you tell us? Working, working towards exactly that and uh, making, some, making some money in a sustainable way. Um, so this year we're, we're really focused on those premium accounts that I talked about, and then um, scaling up our business banking. So we have about 2,000 businesses using Monzo at the moment. Uh, they love it. It turns out that business banking is even more broken than personal banking. I wonder whether we should have started with that in hindsight. Um, so we're looking to scale that up and sort of 10x that over the next few months and bring that to all types of business, people who are just starting out as freelancers up to sort of um, more growth stage digital businesses. Uh, and then alongside that, building more functionality for people to understand their money better, 
things like credit scores are just so, so broken. And I think we can bring our tone of voice and our transparency to something like that in a way that really helps customers. Um, so I'm excited about that. And so we're sort of doing all of these product uh, features and, and innovations. And so our focus from a marketing point of view is how do we, alongside each other, how do we continue growing at the speed we've been growing? We want to bring on millions more people this month, this this year, as well as starting to get people to use the wider gamut of services that we're going to be offering this year. Yeah. And obviously the brand that you've built and continue to build plays a big part of that because having that equity and that trust gives you the opportunity to be able to expand into different things and have people kind of take that leap of faith with you. Totally. Like for, for businesses, we see because of the businesses that we're targeting that, I mean, the the difference for the individual between a personal and business account isn't actually huge because if you're a freelancer, they're almost the same thing. Um, the things you want out of it are obviously different, but that's where that trust and um, recognition and sort of affinity with the brand is so, so useful because we can then help you open a business account and you can trust us with your, your business's finances as well. So for you, Tristan Thomas, as a marketer, what are some sources of inspiration? What do you read? What do you watch? Who do you talk to or listen to? What's out there that's good for you? Probably anything that's not finance or marketing in general. Um, I mean, I'm being main, a bit facetious, but I think at its simplest form, marketing is how do, you, how do you tell people about what you're building in a way that they understand and then help them tell their friends? I mean, that's all it is. And so what I tend to spend my time on is looking at other consumer tech companies. So like I said, Spotify and other similar companies like that. And then I think the wider, more and more, and I think this has probably always been true, but um, how wider society is developing and thinking about tech and finance and that sort of thing. I think that's what it's most interesting to keep up to date with. So the the context of post-2008 financial crash is obviously hugely important to challenger banks. And we're now in 2020 and um, some of that is still uh, left over from 2008, but there are new problems and new feelings in society about tech and finance. And I think that's where I try and spend my time to, as much as possible, understand how consumers and the market are thinking um, and try and stay away from too much uh, marketing-y. You can get really, really insular in marketing, I think. Um, there are some great marketing magazines, but the tendency for them is to actually, I mean, focus on what goes well and post-rationalize success and all of that sort of thing. And so it's just not that useful, I don't think. Um, so hearing about the failures is much more interesting. And so looking outside of the industry, is it more kind of just watching what people are doing and kind of consuming the campaigns that are out there or just kind of, I guess, being a student of the business game in other sectors besides financial services and other disciplines besides marketing? Yeah, and especially in, in tech startups, I think. Um, we're starting to get to this really interesting stage where we're, you know, obviously not as big as a big bank, HSBC and Barclays or something like that. And so we're still a challenger to them, but we now have challenges behind us. And uh, I don't want us to get caught in the middle. Um, so hopefully we can take over the big banks before we get caught. <laughs> Always most vulnerable when you're in the middle. Um, so last question, who else do you think we should get on the show? I think you should get Victor from Free Trade. 
Okay. Um, I think they're a super interesting company that have been sort of, there's this new, uh, I think as we democratize finance, which sounds a bit lordy, but um, I think bringing share trading to people in a way that they understand and that makes sense and that they don't lose lots of money on is interesting. I don't know whether that will be free trade or someone else, but um, I would focus on them. All right. We'll have to reach out to Victor. And that wraps up today's FinTech Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much to Tristan for joining me. Really appreciate it. Where can people find out more about you and Monzo? So Monzo, go to, to monzo.com and sign up. There's no waiting list anymore, so you can get a card tomorrow. What about um, for our audience in the U.S.? Waiting list? Uh, there is a waiting list, yeah. Um, early days. But if you're in L.A. or San Francisco, we'll be able to get your card pretty quickly. Um, yeah, and then I'm on Twitter. Awesome. And thank you everyone so much for listening. If you want to find out more about 11FS, head on over to 11FS.com to see how we are helping companies go truly digital. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and would really appreciate everyone's support as we're launching this new podcast to help us get it off the ground. So please share with people who you think would be interested and please do leave us a review if you liked what we talked about today. Let us know what you thought of today's episode or any others. You can always find us on Twitter or LinkedIn at 11FS. And you can always reach us by emailing podcasts at 11FS.com. We'll have more episodes for you very soon. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.